Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, February 1st, 2024. President Joe Biden issues an executive order imposing financial and travel sanctions on Israeli settlers who take part in attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank. The president also talks about the war between Israel and Hamas at the National Prayer Breakfast at the United States Capitol Building. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin holds his first news conference since the controversy over keeping his recent hospitalization secret from the White House and the public. He says, I've apologized directly to President Biden, and I've told him that I'm deeply sorry for not letting him know immediately that I received a heavy diagnosis. That diagnosis was prostate cancer. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says next week, no later than Wednesday, will be the first test vote on a bill combining aid to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan with U.S. border security. And the final text of that is going to be released this weekend. The Acting Director of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, talks about a recent operation to arrest 171 potentially dangerous non-citizens across 25 cities. A bill to increase the state and local tax deduction, or SALT, for married couples goes before the House Rules Committee, setting up a House vote next week. And members of Congress from both parties are the butt of jokes from other members of Congress at the Washington Press Club Foundation dinner. From the New York Times, President Biden on Thursday ordered broad financial and travel sanctions on Israeli settlers accused of violent attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank, a gesture aimed in part at Arab-American voters in the United States who have expressed fury about the president's backing of Israel's war in Gaza. Mr. Biden authorized the sanctions with an executive order that goes further than a directive issued in December by the State Department, which imposes visa bans on dozens of Israeli settlers who have committed acts of violence in the West Bank. The new order cuts people off from the U.S. financial system and from assets or property they have in the U.S. It also prevents them from traveling to the United States. Four people would be sanctioned on Thursday, but there will be more announcements to come, according to Biden administration officials speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss details of the order. And the executive order comes as Mr. Biden faces growing criticism over U.S. port for Israel's war in Gaza, including from his own party. That was from the New York Times. John Kirby is a spokesperson for the White House National Security Council. He talked about this with reporters flying on Air Force One with the president. Today, the president uh, signed a new executive order that will implement new measures to address actions that undermine peace, security and stability in the West Bank. Uh, This CEO will allow the United States to issue financial sanctions against those directing or participating in certain actions, including acts or threats of violence against civilians, intimidating civilians to cause them to leave their homes, destroying or seizing property or engaging in terrorist activity uh, in the West Bank. The State Department also today issued four designations under this new executive authority, and uh, and that's all public, and you you guys, I'm sure, have have seen that. I do want to remind that this executive order came in the heels of a of a cabinet memo issued by Jake Sullivan back in November directing departments and agencies to uh, to take appropriate action and to develop further policy options uh, for dealing with the violence, the center of violence in the West Bank. And that was followed in December by Secretary Blinken announcing visa restrictions for certain individuals who are involved in this violence. So uh, again, the uh, president has spoken very, very clearly on this since the very beginning. Uh, that the settler violence in the West Bank is unacceptable um, and uh, we'll continue to uh, examine tools at our disposal to deal with it. That's it. John, how do you determine the four people when there are hundreds of incidents against uh, West Bank Palestinians? Do you expect to be more including on Israeli government officials? And is this a signal to them who support, openly support and facilitate these violence? 
There's no plans to target with sanctions uh, Israeli government officials at this time. Uh, I'd refer you to state to speak about how they chose these four individuals. This was an initial set of designations. I'm not going to preview whether there'll be more or not going forward, but it is a new tool that we're going to take a look at, at using appropriately. And I think I lost your, you had one more question. Yeah, I mean, is this a signal to those officials in the Israeli government who openly support and facilitate such violence, including Itamar ben Gavir, who's, uh, who supply the weapons to these people think, who perpetrate? It's a signal to the whole world how seriously President Biden takes this violence against uh, the, the, set, the, the settler violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. He's been very, very clear on that for a long, long time. It's got to stop. It's unacceptable. It's a, it's a detriment to peace and security, uh, certainly there in the West Bank, but to the Palestinian people in general. John Kirby, a spokesperson for the White House National Security Council, official title, the Strategic Communications Coordinator, speaking to reporters on Air Force One. The White House National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, putting out a written statement on this executive order. And the last line is, today's actions seek to promote peace and security for Israelis and Palestinians alike. The account of the Prime Minister of Israel on X posting the overwhelming majority of residents in Judea and Samaria are law-abiding citizens, many of whom are currently fighting as conscripts and reservists to defend Israel. Israel acts against all Israelis who break the law everywhere. Therefore, exceptional measures are unnecessary. At the U.S. State Department in Washington, questions to the spokesperson Matthew Miller about criticisms of the president's executive order. So another criticism out there that this reduces the problem just to individuals, uh, whereas there seems to be a targeted institutionalized effort to expand the settlements in the West Bank. You guys have been uh, raising this issue with the Israelis for for a while. Um, But I mean, how do you go about solving that problem, really? Because I mean, and again, attached to that, I want to ask what exact answer is the secretary and U.S. officials in this building are getting from Israeli government when they raise this issue. It's because it's clear that you don't seem to be satisfied with the actions that they're taking. So what, without d- betraying too much of our private diplomatic conversations, I will say we've had some very frank conversations with them about uh, extremist settler violence. And that includes some very detailed conversations where we have presented cases to the Israeli government um, uh, or exam- you know, cases of settler violence that, where we have seen reports and where we have seen docu- documented settler violence and asked them to take action. And we have seen them take some action. And so we've engaged in a back and forth with them, both at the, at the secretary's level and through our embassy. What we have seen, and, and, and I should say, we have seen since those interventions over the past month, six weeks, two months, we have seen the level of, of extremist settler violence come down somewhat. Not come down enough. We want to see more. But the interventions that we've made have, we believe, made a difference. But we want to see it continue to come down, which is why we have taken the actions today. With respect to your questions about settlements, we have made clear that we think uh, 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 the expansion of settlements in the West Bank uh, undermine peace, undermine stability, threaten a, uh, an ultimate, the ultimate establishment of an Palestinian, independent Palestinian state, make it more difficult. And so we will continue to engage with the Israeli government on that matter as well. Let me, let me go Sean first. Let me go Sean first, and I'll come, I'll come back to see. You've probably seen Netanyahu's office said, hey, look, uh, Israel, I'm paraphrasing, Israel has 
laws. We punish people who break the law. Um, we don't need the U.S. to do this. What's is there a response to that? I mean, is that is you know, why haven't they done it then? Is that I mean, is there a, do you do you think that's a valid argument? In so so they do have laws against violence, obviously, and we have seen them, as I said, take some steps to uh, rein in settler violence. But we don't think those steps have been sufficient, which is why you've seen us take a series of actions starting in December and continuing with the president's executive order and the sanctions we imposed today. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller at his news conference at the State Department in Washington. President Joe Biden spoke about the war between Israel and Hamas and the attacks on U.S. forces in the Middle East from militant groups supported by Iran this morning at the National Prayer Breakfast held on Capitol Hill. I've attended many prayer breakfasts over the years, and Jill and I have been humbled by the prayers of so many when we needed them badly. It means everything to us. And we're all blessed to live in a nation where we can practice our many faiths and practice them freely. And where we can come together and lift up our nation and each other, each other, in our own prayers, especially in tough times. Our prayers continue to be with the families of the three American servicemen killed and attacked in the FOB in Jordan. Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Brianna Moffitt, and Specialist Kennedy Sanders. I spoke with each of these families separately, and Jill and I will be tomorrow at Dover Air Force Base to receive the dignified transfer of their bodies. They've raised their lives in harm's way. They risked it all, and will never forget the sacrifices and service to our country that the dozens of service members who were wounded and are recovering now. I also see the trauma, the death and destruction in Israel and Gaza, and understand that the pain and passion felt by so many here in America and around the world. We value and pray for the lives taken and for the families left behind, for all those who are living in dire circumstances, innocent men, women, and children held hostage or under bombardment or displaced, not knowing where the next meal will come from or if it will come at all. Not only do we pray for peace. We are actively working for peace, security, dignity for the Israeli people and the Palestinian people. I'm engaged in this day and night and working, as many of you in this room are, to find the means to bring our hostages home, to ease the humanitarian crisis, and to bring peace to Gaza and Israel, an enduring peace with two states for two peoples, just as we worked for peace, security, and dignity for the Ukrainian people, as they show incredible resolve and resilience against Putin's aggression. We must continue to help them. President Joe Biden at the National Prayer Breakfast held in Statuary Hall of the U.S. Capitol Building. This is a long-running annual bipartisan event. And today was the first time that President Biden and House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, appeared together in public. They sat next to each other. The president today calling for getting along, saying we have really tough, tough differences. We really go at one another. Remember, let's remember who the hell we are. And both reportedly wiping a tear as Italian tenor Andrea Bocelli saying Amazing Grace. Back to the war between Israel and Hamas. This from Washington Post, more than a dozen demonstrators demanding a ceasefire 
in the Israel-Gaza war were arrested during a protest that blocked Thursday morning rush hour traffic on several major D.C. roads, including interstate exits downtown near the U.S. Capitol. The protesters said on Instagram that they hoped to block the commutes of people working in the White House, Congress, and State Department to demand an immediate and permanent ceasefire and the end of all USA to Israel, among other demands. That was from the Washington Post. Here's what it sounded like at 23rd Street and Constitution Avenue near the State Department. One of the many protests in the middle of the street today in the D.C. area. From Associated Press, President Joe Biden will celebrate his recent endorsement by the United Auto Workers Union by visiting Michigan on Thursday. But his time in this critical battleground state with the nation's highest density of Arab Americans threatens to be overshadowed by growing anger over U.S. support for Israel's war in Gaza. The president's Michigan schedule does not include any meetings with Arab Americans, adding to increasing frustration within a key voting bloc over his full-throated support of Israel in its war with Hamas. That was reporting from Associated Press. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, a Democrat from Michigan, reposting today on X what she said Wednesday on the House floor in Washington about U.S. aid to Israel. Mr. Speaker, on January 5th, National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby revealed that the Biden administration hasn't bothered to conduct a formal review of the Israeli government's compliance with international law since the genocide in Gaza began. Then on January 18th, we learned that the State Department allegedly uses special mechanisms to review and shield Israel, the government of Israel, from consequences under U.S. law when reviewing violations of human rights committed by the government. The level of support for Netanyahu's war crimes by the Biden administration and the majority of this body is beyond belief. Especially, especially when the majority of the American people want the war crimes to end. I'm proud to have led a letter with colleagues and requesting that the president in a nonpartisan group called the Government Accountability Office that many of us use, take the long overdue step of reviewing whether the U.S. security aid to Israel is violating Leahy laws and the president's own conventional arms transfer policy. We should be consistent but also relentless in ensuring that the American weapons are not used to commit war crimes anywhere in the world. That is the bare minimum. So please, I'm urging colleagues to demand that President Biden and our government have the power to, again, to make sure that we're holding every government accountable uh, that we are sending weapons to. We must facilitate a lasting ceasefire now to ensure safety of everyone that lives there. Thank you, and I yield. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, Democrat from Michigan on the House floor. The term Leahy Law, according to a page on the website of the State Department, refers to two statutory provisions prohibiting the U.S. government from using funds for assistance to units of foreign security forces where there is a credible information implicating that unit in the commission of gross violations of human rights and refers to Senator Patrick Leahy, former senator, Democrat from Vermont. Story from the Guardian newspaper, the U.S. has ordered a series of reprisal strikes to be launched over more than one day against Iranian-backed militia. The U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has said 
He said all drones in the region attacking the U.S. were of Iranian origin. The retaliatory strikes are expected to hit militia in Syria and possibly Iraq. Though Austin did not specify the timing or precise location, he insisted that a lot of thought in Washington had gone into ensuring that the U.S. response did not trigger a major escalation. That was from the Guardian newspaper in Great Britain. Here's one of the reporter's questions to Secretary Austin at today's news conference at the Pentagon. Does the U.S. need to escalate its military actions or do something new or unprecedented in order to deter rounding its proxies? And, and if so, how can that be done without, um, without uh, sparking a broader conflict? I think everyone recognizes uh, the, the challenge associated with making sure that we hold the right people accountable, uh, that, uh, that we do everything necessary to protect our troops, and that we manage things so that it, they, they don't escalate. I don't think there's any, any set formula for doing this. I do think, though, that, uh, that in everything that we do, uh, as we work our way through our decision-making process with the National Security uh, um, Council, um, we're, we're, we're managing all of that, looking at all of that, and, and we're using every instrument of national power to, to address various issues. So, so I think, I mean, there, there are ways to, uh, to, to manage this so it doesn't spiral out of control, and that's been our focus uh, throughout. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at a news conference at the Pentagon. A story from Reuters, Iran's Revolutionary Guards have scaled back deployment of their senior officers in Syria due to a spate of deadly Israeli strikes and will rely more on allied ship militia to preserve their sway there. Five sources familiar with the matter said. Defense Secretary Austin today also speaking about his recent hospitalization, the first time he's had a news conference about it since he was released from the hospital, recovered at home, returned to the Pentagon. And he talked about the controversy over his not telling the White House or the public about the hospitalization until much later. I'm recovering well, but as you can see, I'm still recovering. Still having some leg pain and doing physical therapy to get past it. I'm deeply grateful to my doctors and the nursing staff at Walter Reed, and I very much appreciate all the good wishes. But I want to be crystal clear. We did not handle this right, and I did not handle this right. I should have told the president about my cancer diagnosis. I should have also told my team and the American public. And I take full responsibility. I apologize to my teammates and to the American people. Now, I want to make it very clear that there were no gaps in authorities and no risk to the department's command and control. At every moment, either I or the deputy secretary was in full charge. And we've already put in place some new procedures to make sure that any lapses in notification don't happen. In the future, if the deputy secretary needs to temporarily assume the, off the duties of my office, she and several White House offices will be immediately notified, including the White House Situation Room. And so will key officials across the department. And the reason for that assumption of duties will be included in writing. Now, I want you all to know, that, to know why this happened. I was being treated for prostate cancer. The news shook me. And I know that it shakes so many others, especially in the black community. It was a gut punch. And frankly, my first instinct was to keep it private. I don't think it's news that 
I'm a pretty private guy. I never like uh, burdening others with my problems. It's just not my way. But I've learned from this experience. So taking this kind of job means losing some of the privacy that most of us expect. The American people have a right to know if their leaders are facing health challenges that might affect their ability to perform their duties, even temporarily. So a wider circle should have been notified, especially the president. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at the Pentagon News Conference. He said he never directed staff to conceal his hospitalization and never considered resigning from his cabinet post. One reporter asked him why he should not be fired. You were hospitalized for days before you informed the White House or the Commander-in-Chief of your condition and your absence. Anyone else within the military chain of command would have faced reprimand or even dismissal. Why shouldn't that same standard apply to you, sir? Well, let me just say that, uh, uh, thanks for the question, that, that we didn't get this right. And as I said, I take full responsibility for, uh, for uh, the department's actions. Uh, in terms of why uh, on the second notification was, was not made to the White House, uh, that information was available. Uh, I'm not sure uh, at this point uh, what exactly happened, but I think details uh, will, uh, will play out as the review is, is conducted. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, you can find his full news conference at our video library at cspan.org. He did note the Pentagon is doing an internal review, and there's also an investigation by the Pentagon's Inspector General about how his hospitalization was and was not communicated to others. Secretary also asked about being called to testify before the House Armed Services Committee about this on February 14th. He did not say whether he would testify, but said he would continue to be in touch with the committee chair to answer his questions. While President Biden's national security supplemental spending request for Israel, Ukraine and Taiwan is still pending before Congress, today the European Union approved 50 billion euros for Ukraine to continue its war with Russia. And 50 billion euros is about 54 billion U.S. dollars. The European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen held a news conference in Brussels. Today is indeed a very special day. The European Council reconfirmed Europe's unwavering commitment to stand with Ukraine. We all know that Ukraine is fighting for us. So we will support them with the necessary funding and provide them with the much-needed predictability they deserve. And I think these 50 billion euros for four years also send a very strong message to Putin, just ahead of the second anniversary of his brutal invasion. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen in Brussels, Belgium. There were 27 members of the European Union, and the aid to Ukraine had been held up by Hungary's Prime Minister, Viktor Orban. Some movement expected next week in the U.S. Senate on aid to Ukraine. More on that when Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague, Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. It's free and wherever you find your podcasts. From Politico, this story, lead Democratic negotiator Senator Chris Murphy is officially getting worried about the prospects of a border security agreement coming together, saying Republicans are unwilling to pony up necessary funding for the deal. He said, every day that goes by in which they don't commit to funding the deal is a day that we're closer to their decision being made in favor of Donald Trump. And Politico says he was referring to the former president's public opposition to any agreement passing Congress. More from Senator Murphy in the article. If you want to stand up a new emergency power at the border, you have to fund it. That doesn't happen for free. If you want to dramatically shorten the asylum processing time, you have to fund it. That doesn't happen for free. Also this from the article. Meanwhile, some lawmakers are openly floating a separate vote on aid to Ukraine or Israel. Republicans, for their part, have called on President Joe Biden to use his existing powers to stem the flow of migrants coming into the country illegally. Today on the Senate floor, the Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, said that next week there will be a first vote on a combined package. For the information of senators, the Senate will be in session and will hold a vote on Monday, February 5th. There is no longer a no-vote day. While we are respectful of members' schedules and try to limit inconveniences, these challenges at the border and in Ukraine and the Middle East are just too great, and we will need to be here working. Next, as I said, discussions are going well, so I want members to be aware that we plan to post the full text of the National Security Supplemental as early as tomorrow, no later than Sunday. That will give members plenty of time to read the bill before voting on it. As for the timing of the vote, I plan to file cloture on the motion to proceed to the vehicle on Monday, leading to the first vote on the National Security Supplemental no later than Wednesday. Senator Chuck Schumer, the Majority Leader, Democrat from New York, on the Senate floor today. A reminder, you can always follow the Senate live gavel to gavel on C-SPAN 2, and the House is on C-SPAN, and they're both on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. The U.S. House today passed the last of four bills from this week, increasing penalties for certain crimes committed by migrants. Today's bill makes driving under the influence a deportable offense. The other bills concern Social Security fraud, evading border patrol in a motor vehicle, and terrorism or attacks against Israel. Speaking in favor of today's DUI bill, Congressman John Curtis, Republican from Utah. I've personally been to the southern border and seen the crisis firsthand. And I don't care your political persuasion. All of us know what's happening down there is wrong and needs to be corrected. The first duty of the federal government is to protect American citizens, and this cannot be done without securing our border. I'm pleased that the House is taking the steps this week to do so. It is not clear under current law that individuals illegally in this country can be deported for driving while intoxicated. This legislation would ensure any non-citizen convicted of or admitting to driving under the influence would no longer be allowed to remain in the United States. This shouldn't be controversial. When you drive drunk, you are putting your neighbors and the broader community at unacceptable risk and that we cannot allow. Also this week, we passed legislation that would allow law enforcement to prosecute criminals who intentionally refuse to stop for Border Patrol agents. 
The practice of running from Border Patrol agents is dangerous for residents, patrol officers, and the fugitive. I, hope deep, I hold deep compassion for those who are in circumstances that they feel the need to enter the United States illegally. However, we are a country of laws and need to ensure that individuals know they need to enter the United States only through the legal manners. Congressman John Curtis, Republican from Utah on the House floor. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Democrat from Washington State, opposed today's DUI bill. Once again, the majority is wasting our time by putting forward a piece of legislation that has zero chance of becoming law and that is extraordinarily broad. No one condones driving under the influence. We should do everything we can to prevent people from getting behind the wheel while intoxicated. But this bill, designed to scapegoat and denigrate immigrants, will not solve the serious problem of DUIs. Public safety threats, including those who have been convicted of serious DUI offenses, are already inadmissible and removable under the Immigration and Nationality Act, and this bill would not change or enhance that. Under the INA, a conviction of a crime involving moral turpitude, where the punishment can be for a year or longer, makes an individual deportable. Courts have ruled over and over again that serious DUI offenses that put others at risk are CIMTs and make the perpetrators deportable. But this bill isn't about serious offenses, Mr. Speaker. Far from it. The bill says that a conviction for a single DUI offense, misdemeanor or felony, makes you instantly deportable, and an admission to such an offense makes you instantly inadmissible, no questions asked. I can understand, maybe, the appeal of something that sounds like a zero-tolerance policy. But let me tell you, Mr. Speaker, if we had that kind of policy here in the House of Representatives, there would be several members that would not be members of this chamber. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, Democrat from Washington State, on the House floor. The House passed this bill by a vote of 274 to 150, with 59 Democrats joining all Republicans in voting yes. The acting director of ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Patrick Lechtleitner, announced today the results of a targeted operation to arrest 171 migrants in more than two dozen cities who he says were potentially dangerous. He held a news conference at ICE headquarters in Washington. Thank you for joining us here today as we announce the results of a targeted operation that enabled us to arrest potentially dangerous non-citizens in 25 cities across the United States. Over the course of 11 days, our dedicated and committed committed law enforcement officers zeroed in on removable at-large non-citizens who are wanted for or who have already been convicted of horrible, almost unspeakable crimes like assault against children, including sexual assault and murder. Our officers also targeted non-citizens who present dangers uh, to national security, public safety, and border security. ICE only targets non-citizens for arrest when they can determine that an arrest is a good use of our resources. We operate with limited funding, but enforcing existing immigration laws within the U.S. interior is ERO's top priority. It's our job to enforce these laws to keep the American people safe. This operation took place in 25 major cities across the country, places where unlawfully present non-citizens were moving freely after being accused or convicted of truly heinous crimes or threatening our peace and security in the United States. 
But these communities are now safer thanks to our officers' tireless efforts. They've worked around the clock tracking down targets and planning safe, efficient, and effective arrests. Today, I'm pleased to announce that our officers took 171 potentially dangerous, unlawful, present non-citizens off the streets. Of those, 103 had convictions or pending charges for assaulting or for assault against children, including sexual assault, and 10 had pending charges or convictions of homicide or murder. ERO is focused on smart, effective immigration enforcement. We know that target operations like this will help us fulfill our obligations to the American people and then that, that they minimize our risks to the brave officers and the innocent people leaving it, living in these communities. ICE Acting Director Patrick Leitner referring to ERO enforcement and removal operations, part of his news conference today at ICE headquarters in Washington, D.C. One reporter asked him about the negotiations in Congress on a bipartisan border security agreement. And the reporter refers in her question to his previous answer, where he says he was not going to say when the next targeted operation will take place. Thank you so much. I won't ask when, but I will ask about resources and what further resources ICE needs right now. And if we can drill down a little bit about the current capacity of ICE detention facilities and what percentage of those facilities have beds filled. Do you have a number on beds filled? Furthermore, uh, not going to ask you about hypothetical legislation, but maybe broadly there has been, uh, you know, talk in the Senate of adding more beds. What would more detention space mean for ICE? What would that enable you to do? Is that something you're supportive of? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I am. 100%. We need more resources. Uh, we're working with the department and administration and our partners, obviously, in Congress uh, from appropriations. Listen, we need more resources, and we're working to get that as hard as we can. We understand the political realities of that, but, you know, we, do, we need more resources. We're currently under a CR through the beginning of March. And we're going to have to make some tough decisions going forward if we don't get more supplemental funding because we have to live within our means like everything else in the government and in, in reality. Uh, as far as what we're doing for beds, we're already over 5,000 more than what we're funded for. So we've been working, we've been punching far above our weight and we're going to have to deal, you know, and look at dealing with reality going forward if we don't get supplemental funding. So we're using everything we have right now to, to go after these individuals, and we hope that uh, our partners in, you know, in the administration and working with Congress, we can get additional funding because we definitely could use it. When you say you're going to have to make some tough decisions, can you elaborate a little bit about that? Well, we have to look at the organizational structure and just see where we can get efficiencies and where, where we can uh, you know, work with the budget. Acting ICE Director Patrick Lechleitner at a news conference today at ICE headquarters. NBC News reporter Rebecca Kaplan posting today that Congressman Ken Buck, Republican from Colorado, is a firm no on impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas after discussions with Congressman Mark Green, Republican from Tennessee, the Homeland Security Chair. Congressman Buck was interviewed on MSNBC. This is not a high crime or misdemeanor. It's not an impeachable offense. This is a policy difference. Um, let me, from the outset, say there is a crisis on the border. Uh, the, the law needs to be enforced. Um, but uh, if we start going down this path of impeachment with a uh, cabinet official, uh, we are opening a door as Republicans that we don't want to open. The next president, who is a Republican, will face the same scrutiny from Democrats. It's wrong, and, and we should not set this precedent. 
Have leaders been trying to convince you otherwise? And is there anything that will change your mind? Or when you say solid no, you mean solid no. Yeah, I'm not I'm not changing my mind. I have met with uh, Chairman Green from the Homeland Security uh, Committee. I have met with uh, the staff. I have talked to outside constitutional experts. I've talked to former members of Congress about what this would mean for Congress. Uh, I, I believe I have done my due diligence and, and I am standing firm uh, at this point on, on this. If there's some new evidence, I'm happy to look at it, but I don't believe there will be. Congressman Ken Buck, Republican from Colorado on MSNBC. The U.S. House could vote as early as next week on impeaching the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas after the Homeland Security Committee this week approved two articles of impeachment, one saying that the that the secretary has not been enforcing immigration law sufficiently, the second one that he violated the public trust. Daily Beast reporter Reese Gorman pointing out today that effective tomorrow, the Republican majority in the House over the Democrats will be 219 seats to 212. He writes, so with 216 being the magic number, Republicans can only afford three defections if everyone is present. But Steve Scalise, Republican of Louisiana, and Hal Rogers, Republican of Kentucky, have been absent recently due to health. If Ken Buck is a legit no, he flip-flops a lot. Again, this is Reese Gorman writing, then Republicans can only lose two more people on Mayorkas' vote. But if Rogers and Scalise are still out next week, Republicans can only afford one more defection if all Democrats are present. Could be a tight vote on Mayorkas if they bring it up next week. House Republicans this morning got right to fulfilling a promise that Speaker Mike Johnson made to some Republican members from New York this after. The Wednesday night vote in the House to pass $78 billion bill that expands the earned income tax credit and restores business tax breaks. It was a bipartisan vote, 357 to 70, but that bill did not include an increase in state and local tax deduction or SALT as the New York members wanted. Today, the House Rules Committee met at 8 a.m. Eastern on a SALT bill sponsored by Congressman Mike Lawler, Republican from New York. The committee will set the rules for House floor debate next week. This bill would eliminate an unfair tax loophole in our current tax code, which penalizes married couples and prevents them from deducting the full $20,000 they deserve, instead of arbitrarily holding them to $10,000, despite the fact that two individuals are filing taxes together. This unfair penalty has had an immense impact on families across the country who have been double taxed for living in higher cost states. This legislation before us today, which I introduced as my first bill in the House, remedies the penalty and will provide millions in relief for families in New York's 17th district and billions in tax relief for families across the country. Some background information that may be helpful for further framing this issue for the committee. Fewer taxpayers deducted their state and local taxes in the 2020 tax year. Nationwide, 9% of taxpayers used the SALT deduction in 2020 as compared to 31% in 2017. This is a decrease of nearly 31.1 million taxpayers who didn't deduct their state and local taxes in 2020 as compared to 2017. While SALT deductions are limited to 10,000, the average amount of deduction decreased to 8,135 in 2020 from 13,400 in 2017. Additionally, and it's important to note, there was no cost of living adjustment built into the SALT cap. In New York State, 35%, or 3,418,300 returns of filers, took the SALT deduction in 2017. 
In 2020, just 10%, or 1,020,790 returns of filers took the SALT deductions. Congressman Mike Lawler, Republican from New York, at the witness table today in the House Rules Committee room in the U.S. Capitol building. Sitting beside him, Congressman Brad Schneider, Democrat from Illinois, who said he supports the SALT tax reform, but criticized the process used by Congressman Lawler and the Republican majority. I agree with uh, my colleague, uh, Mr. Lawler, that the uh, penalty of the cap on the SALT deduction isn't fair. That the working families who are bearing this burden in states like New York and Illinois need real relief. But they need real relief, something that's going to make a difference. Uh, The SALT cap is a penalty on working families. It is double taxation by the very principle. I have constantly been surprised, and we've talked about this in the Ways and Means Committee many times, is why my colleagues on the other side of the aisle want to penalize people, penalize communities. The communities where we live in Illinois and New York have made the decision to responsibly fund their local governments, to pay for parks, for schools, to pay for quality roads. They've made the decision to do so and to put the burden on the people who live and benefit from those. These are states that have high property taxes. They have high income taxes. And then, because of the TCJA, decision was made to tax those again, double taxation. It's not fair. We need, and I've been calling for, a full repeal. And I think if Mr. Lawler was serious, he'd be here in front of you asking for a full repeal of the SALT tax. But that's not where we are. What we're talking about is a small step for a one-year looking backwards. And what we're talking about is doing this in a bill that was introduced last night, with no time to read. We're sitting here, 8 in the morning, having had no chance to consider it. There's no debate taking place on this, and we're just trying to rush it through. Congressman Brad Schneider, Democrat from Illinois, at the House Rules Committee meeting this morning. A resolution or rule coming out of that committee was the starting point for debate and a vote on Congressman Waller's assault bill could happen next week in the full House. Wall Street today, the Dow up 369, Nasdaq up 197, S&P up 60. The Washington Press Club Foundation held its annual congressional dinner Wednesday night, giving awards to journalists for their achievements and hearing some members of the House and Senate tell jokes about the media and other members of Congress. First, here is the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York. As you know, it's been a busy time in the Capitol. Senators are hard at work on a bipartisan agreement over the National Security Supplemental Package. Though there are very different opinions in the Senate, I'm proud of the bipartisanship we've built, stemming from the leadership on down. As our century seems more and more divided, Leader McConnell and I have been working very hard to move negotiations forward and keep the spirit spirit of bipartisanship alive. I guess you could say, I got 99 problems, but Mitch ain't one. I often like my own jokes better than anybody else. But now, But, but now it's a very unsettling time. Shh. 
I know it was a good joke. <laughs> but, but now it's a very unsettling time here in Congress, as we all know. The House has been in endless chaos. Supreme Court justices, ethics are in question. Donald Trump has declared he will return and rule as dictator. And apparently, worst of all, I said Zinn shouldn't be marketed to kids. <laughs> so yeah, it's been a hell of a year with a lot of challenges and changes on Capitol Hill. For example, it's long been said that the most dangerous place in Washington is between Chuck Schumer and a TV camera. Well, however, as of this year, that's changed. As we saw multiple times, there's only one position more dangerous holding the speaker's gavel. That's not the only thing that's changed. Last year, George Santos said he was Jewish. Now he has a new ethnicity. He's thin-ished. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, at the Washington Press Club Foundation Congressional Dinner Wednesday in Washington. Also speaking and making a couple of jokes, Congresswoman Lisa McLean, Republican from Michigan. You've had so many remarkable speakers. Tim Scott, Steve Scalise, Joni Ernst. Why on earth would you want a little hillbilly from Romeo, Michigan coming to talk to you? But then I figured it out. Y'all thought my name, my last name was McCain. You thought you were getting some moderate? You didn't realize you were getting some Trump-loving MAGA Republican, right? Well, buckle up. I got 15 minutes, and actually I got more than 15 minutes because my counterpart isn't here tonight. And just like at the southern border, I'm already here, so you're not getting rid of me anytime soon. Right? Now, just to lay some ground rules, if you could, for the speech tonight, if everyone could, please keep their hands above the table. And I know it's date night from some of you, but no inappropriate touching. That includes you, Lauren Bobert. No vaping either. <laughs> and all the members here, um, we had our last vote tonight, so there's no rush. We are not in a rush. There is no need to pull that fire alarm, Jamal Bowman. We are all good, man. Relax, have a glass of wine, enjoy. Now. I do want to give a warning to the, press, to the Press Club Foundation. Make sure to count all the gold necklaces, your silverware, and the gold bars, because I hear Bob Menendez is here, and I do know he's got a few legal bills to pay. I'm here all week, folks. Congresswoman Lisa McLean, Republican from Michigan, at the Washington Press Club Foundation's 78th annual dinner Wednesday night. The .org website as this. The foundation is the descendant of the Women's National Press Club, which was founded in 1919 to ensure that women were equally represented in the newsroom. Today, the foundation continues to support equality and diversity in the newsroom through its various programs and outreach endeavors. We also work to educate students and the public on the role of the free press. 
And thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word. It's free and get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night. Mm-hmm.